You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. The presentation you are about to hear was recorded September the 25th, 1999 in Atlanta, Georgia at the 15th anniversary celebration of the Advocates for Self-Government. You can reach the Advocates for Self-Government at 800-932-1776. This tape is copyrighted by the Advocates, but you hereby have permission to make copies, gift copies, for your friends. The title of the presentation, it is a panel discussion, is Libertarianism and Religion. And the first speaker you'll hear is Michael Cloud, who is the MC for the event, and we'll be introducing the participants. Now approve of it. I had been wrong, and Marshall, I want to apologize to you publicly. I finally figured out what it is and why I ought to support it. And I thought of six or eight million kids in school Monday morning saying, please God, let Marshall Fritz win. <laughs> I hope we can all agree that's a prayer that we all back. Our, 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 our panel today is going to be moderated by Marshall Fritz, and for those of you who know Marshall Fritz, this may be the only opportunity to see him in the position of moderate. So I hope that you'll enjoy it while you can. I do have good news. For those of you who come from different points of view, this is a panel which will affect how we view our Christian, our Jewish, our Muslim, people of all different faiths and people without faiths from a pro-freedom point of view. I'd like you to remember the word religion in Italian means to weave together. What weaves us together is our values. Never forget that. Ladies and gentlemen, our moderator today is a good friend, a longtime libertarian, the founder of Advocates for Self-Government, Marshall Fritz. Thank you. Many of you know me from my current incarnation as the uh, director of the separation of school and state alliance. But my remarks today have uh, basically uh, nothing to do with the separation of school and state uh, per se. I am speaking on this panel and moderating this panel is just plain old Marshall. So I've got to take this hat off for the next hour, um, although at the 10 o'clock hour it will come back on and we'll have a separation of school and state presentation. Our topic, our topic today is uh, our liberty and religion compatible, and the, the, the subset of that is, or deckhead on that, is uh, specifically uh, Christianity. But the, but the main thing is our religion and uh, liberty uh, compatible. We have four people, uh, five counting me, ta -da, ta -da, um, who are speaking from different perspectives and that their worldview is different. Uh, Paul Schmidt uh, from uh, Johnson City, Tennessee will be first, and Paul is a, um, a Protestant of a Calvinist Presbyterian sort of persuasion. Uh, second will be Jacob Hornberger, and uh, Jacob will describe his own um, theistic uh, orientation himself to you, I'm sure. Next comes Walter Block, hard-carrying atheist, and um, energetically so. So, um, the man who yesterday brought us Murder Park. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, to those that didn't see yesterday's presentation, uh, I, I should remind you, 
when Walter described this, he was not endorsing it uh, as something that he would participate in or encourage his family to. He was simply describing it as a hypothetical way to clear up a point. Mary Ruart is famous in the libertarian movement for being nice. Um, <laughs> and we'll welcome anecdote, or anecdote, <laughs> antidote. <laughs> Where's my emodium? Uh, welcome antidote to Walter, whose reputation is um, personally nice, but uh, ideologically and philosophically um, less. And then comes... <laughs> and if you can't say something nice about every, anybody, Marshall, just shut up. So, Mom, we'll run off. And then each will have five minutes. I pleaded for founder's privilege because the presentation I'm intending to make uh, may um, end invitations to pre present at libertarian uh, events, so I've asked for uh, a double wide, and uh, each of the uh, panelists has begrudgingly conceded, and, uh, and I will then have ten minutes. At that point, it's time for the panelists to discuss amongst each other, publicly, uh, any reactions that they have, and then, uh, Lord willing, um, and the time permits, we'll have a Q&A period. So, with uh, that, we bring up Paul Schmidt, Johnson City, Tennessee, friend, libertarian. Go for it. Remember your timer. He's right there. And I'll be over here to help you. Fellow libertarians, what advances in liberty that we've had in the Western world have not had the involvement of Christians? There are two that I want to talk about today in detail, American independence and the Constitution. The father of the Protestant Church, John Calvin, was the virtual founder of America. Christians with the Calvinist uh, roots heavily influenced the legacy of freedom that we have in the United States today. These Christians made up two-thirds of the people living in the American colonies in 1776. Reverend John Witherspoon was the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. He told the Continental Congress, quote, to hesitate is to consent to our own slavery. This noble document should be subscribed this very morning by every pen in the house, end quote. Later, the Presbyterian clergy lined up solidly behind the independence from Great Britain. King George wrote, I fix the blame of these extraordinary proceedings upon the Presbyterians. <laughs> By the end of the war, all but one of the colonels in the colonial army were Presbyterian elders. Presbyterians were so well respected that the other denominations worried at the end of the war that the Presbyterian Church would become the established Church of America. But in 1783, the Presbyterian Church declared, quote, that every member of civil society ought to be protected in the full and free exercise of their religion, end quote. Histori historians also praised the Calvinists. George Bancroft wrote, 
quote, he will not respect, he who will not respect the memory of John Calvin knows nothing of American liberty. Calvinism was revolutionary. It taught as divine revelation the natural equality of man, end quote. Unfortunately, the French Revolution did not have this same religious foundation. De Tocqueville wrote, in France, I'd almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in America, I found that these were intimately united. And another historian wrote that Presbyterians believe that God alone is Lord of the conscience and God alone is the author of liberty. He also said, that is why that this Presbyterian rebellion succeeded in America when the French Revolution degenerated into tyranny that was much worse. The successful American Revolution was made possible by a change in heart that occurred a full generation earlier. The spiritual leaders, such as the Presbyterian minister Gilbert Tennant and Anglican minister George Whitefield, led the Great Awakening. Both emphasized the need for a new birth, and the colonists responded in droves. Not only did the Christianity play a big part in the independence, but they also brought about the Constitution um, from the Calvinist thought and tradition. Calvin believed that constitutional law is the benefit of all the people. And in America, we know our history that the Mayflower Compact, a Christian civil covenant, started the tradition that led to the constitutional development of the colonies and eventually the nation. After reading the constitutions of the several states, de Tocqueville noted, quote, in America, religion is the road to knowledge, and the observance of the divine law leads men to civil freedom, end quote. These, these are just two of the many contributions that Christians have made. We need to remember that to change society, we can only do it following a change in heart. This is my Thank you, Paul. I rarely disagree with uh, Tocqueville and, uh, and, uh, and rarely praise Calvin, but uh, boy, I think we ought to put uh, Calvin up for uh, canonization or something like that. I saw my son-in-law pass a note to, to his wife saying um, uh, he looks like he's forgotten to embarrass us this year, so uh, let me... Let me assure them that is not the case. Uh, I would like to present to you uh, Dr. Kyle McKenna, uh, my son-in-law. Would you please stand, Dr. McKenna? Uh, and his wife, uh, known in our family as Little Annie Fanny, who is uh, in the business of producing a grandchild. Would you uh, stand and see if it shows yet, right? careful passing that note. <laughs> Jacob Hornberger is one of the most 
exciting presenters in the libertarian movement, and all of us know that because of, we thrilled five years ago and today, yesterday and at other times at hearing him present. Um, so I don't know what he's going to be able to do in five minutes, but I suspect we're all going to enjoy it a great deal. Um, J Jacob Hornberger. When Marshall asked me what I planned to say in, in this short period of time, I said, well, I think I'll just speak the truth and keep it very short. If you're not a libertarian, you're going to hell. <laughs> you know, when the government is good with people's money, whether it's flood relief or HUD housing or Social Security, they always say that this reflects that we are a good people, that we're a caring and compassionate nation. I would suggest that it's the exact opposite. Because, you know, there's no collective soul that goes to heaven. There's not America going to, uh, to heaven. Uh, and uh, I doubt very seriously whether it's going to be effective for individuals to uh, show up at the pearly gates with copies of their income tax returns and... and uh, the Federal Register and say, look what I've done for the poor and the needy and so forth. Uh, you know, and who is the saint in this process? Is it the Internal Revenue Service agent that takes our money? Is it the citizen who's had his money taken from him by force and terror? Is it the president that has authorized the disaster relief? Um, is it the Congress uh, has authorized and acted the law? You know, who's the saint in this process? Well, the reason I say it's the exact opposite is that we have to keep in mind that all of this involves a violation, a severe violation of one of God's Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Uh. What this process entails is taking the money of people by force against their will, money that they would have used in their own way, and being good with it in some perverse fashion. Uh, this is a denigration also of the great God-given gift of free will. That if God trusts us to make our own decisions in our own life, trusts us to such an extent that he even gives us the power to deny him, to reject him, under what authority does man interfere with this great gift? Um, there's the story of the young rich man approaching Jesus and saying, look, I followed all your commandments, what else is there to do? And Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the young rich man says, you're asking too much, I simply cannot do that, and he walks away. But what's significant about that story is that Jesus honored the request, the, the choice. That our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ didn't call a centurion and say, force him to share with the poor. He's rejecting the poor, force him to do it. No. Under free will, he gives him the right to say no, to reject his fellow man, to reject even God himself. And it is this, this principle that we libertarians are fighting for in a theological sense, the right of individuals to say no. Uh, I will not honor uh, my mother and father. I will not care for my fellow man, because that is the very essence of free will, the right to say no. Even in the, in the sense uh, of, of the regulation of peaceful activity, the drug war, uh, people have a right to engage in self-destructive behavior. Now, we may say as a Christian that this is not a good thing to do. The body is a temple. We should honor it, take care of it. We should love ourselves as we love God, as we love others. But we would say that an individual has a right to reject himself, 
to engage in self-destructive behavior, even to the point of committing suicide, because that is the very essence of free will. Um, I guess as a, as a, and it's in this process of falling into uh, severe sin sometimes, severe despair, that a person discovers the mystery of the cross, discovers the majesty of our Lord. Uh, so I, I, I believe that we need to, in a utilitarian sense, let the process work, leave people free to stumble into error, to fall into sin, to reject their fellow man, because it is the only way, it is God's way, that people ultimately confront themselves and confront and, and find him. Uh, I suppose the best way to sum it up is the, words, is the way a libertarian minister once put it, sin is just too important an item to be left in the hands of the government. Well, I had high expectations, and they were once again exceeded. Thank you very much, Bumper. And next, uh, from a, uh, the acerbic uh, department of the libertarian movement, please welcome the dean of the economics department of uh, Central... Uh, Are you confused as to who's speaking next? That's right. Thank you. I mean, I saw him preparing his speech. Uh, he should be ready to go. Are you ready? Good. Walter Block. <laughs> Mary and I are having an identity crisis. <laughs> I think the, the reason that I was invited on this panel uh, was because I was for a long time head of the Fraser Institute's division called the Center for the Study of Economics and Religion. And in that vein, what I did is I oh, wrote four or five books and edited a few others, mainly uh, responding to papal encyclicals and bishops' statements on the economy. Um, we had a few successes, a few converts. We had a few conferences where we'd bring uh, half the half the people who were leftist clergymen, which is almost a redundancy, <laughs> not quite. There, there are one or two exceptions, but it's, it's almost a redundancy. Um, it was fun. Uh, I enjoyed doing it. Um, I, I think it's important to do. I think that, you know, we should uh, convert everyone uh, to, to the one true faith, uh, libertarianism. Uh, as I was saying the other day, I think that the essence of libertarianism is the non-aggression axiom, and as far as I'm concerned, anyone who adheres to that can be a libertarian in good standing. Uh, every time we add a new criteria that in order to be a libertarian you have to be an atheist, or you can't be an atheist, you have to be a religious person, we lose more libertarians, and we've got so few uh, to begin with, we can ill afford to, uh, to lose any. But that's just a pragmatic consideration, perhaps unworthy of our uh, consideration. More important is justice. Why should we preclude anyone from libertarianism who is a libertarian just because he is religious or she or uh, not religious or whatever? Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to play handball. I'm a real uh, avid handball player. Suppose I would have set up this thing that in order to be a libertarian, you really have to play handball. I mean, th it's silly. I could probably come up with reasons for it. <laughs> There's a fellow handball player who, uh, who wants to decimate the, the libertarian movement even more. Now, Ayn Rand is sometimes accused of doing this, namely uh, setting up uh, old, uh, false uh, uh, barriers to jump over in order to become a libertarian. I don't think she's really guilty of it, because she never precluded anyone from libertarianism. 
she wasn't a libertarian, she was an objectivist. She said, if you're a religious person, you couldn't be an objectivist. And I guess that's true, because the way she defined objectivism was uh, atheism was a key. But what happened is an awful lot of libertarians came into the movement through Ayn Rand. Let me just take a quick poll. How many would say that Ayn Rand was a significant uh, impetus in their being here today? Well, that's, that's maybe two-thirds or a little bit more than half, maybe 60%. And this is many years later. If I had given this speech 20 years ago, it probably would have been a higher percentage. And I think that, uh, and I include myself in this, the reason I'm here is because of Ayn Rand initially, and Nathaniel Brennan. But I think we do our movement and our fellow libertarian members who are religious a disservice by uh, somehow precluding them or saying they're not really libertarians, you know, they, they're under the, the control of God or something like that, and they're under orders or what have you. Uh, I think that as long as uh, religious people keep their mitts off of other people and their property, and many of them do, some of them don't, uh, they're libertarians, but it's not based on whether they're religious or not, it's based on whether they're libertarians or not. It's just as irrelevant to me, to, whether you're an atheist or a theist, as to whether you play checkers or chess or handball or whatever. Uh, I've been making a list of violations of libertarian principles, and uh, we've got them on both sides. Uh, on the atheist side, uh, there's Stalin, there's Mao, there's Pol Pot, they killed millions of people. On the uh, religious side, there were the Crusades, the Jihad, Holy Wars, uh, Conquistadores. I think Hitler was a religious person, uh, so he's a bad guy. The, there was the uh, Salman Rushdie business, where uh, he wrote a book that offended some religious people, and they had this fatwa against him. And there was also this, um, Abraham was told to kill Isaac. I, I, I don't know, if God ever told me to kill my son, I'd tell him to take a hike. Because... Um, <laughs> Because I'm a libertarian first, uh, first, last, uh, in the middle, whatever. Uh, there is one group that I would recommend to you if you're interested in this sort of stuff. It's the Acton Institute. Uh, they've done pretty good work on many things. They've certainly shown uh, the libertarian banner in the religious community. Uh, but as is my want, as Marshall said, I'm basically nasty. I, I uh, have to be critical of somebody, otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll lose my hard-earned reputation as a nasty person. So I want to criticize uh, two sets of people uh, uh, on, while, I'm, while I'm here. And one of them is, is this, uh, when I used to write uh, stuff on papal encyclicals and U.S. bishop statements, am I out of time? Oh, well, I guess I won't criticize. <laughs> when I used to criticize uh, them, what I would say is, look, uh, these are confused documents. On the one hand, you have some capitalist uh, notions. On the other hand, you have some communist notions, and I would label each and say why one was correct and one was wrong. What some people do instead is they say, uh, no, no, the pope or the bishop is really a libertarian, and they focus on just those elements, and they ignore the others, whereas people on the left do the opposite. It seems silly to me. Why not just say what the truth is? And I was also going to attack George Gilder, but I'll have to do that another time. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know if he was bitter enough to deserve an entire cup of uh, Mary Ruart, but um, and that sweetness. So we'll uh, but please come and give us. Love you, Mary. Well, I speak to you from the point of once having been a devout Catholic, then then a uh, fervent atheist, and now more or less leaning towards the Hindu or Buddhist uh, type of philosophy. So let me tell you what I learned from this journey. I learned it really 
doesn't matter so much if you believe in God or how you believe in God. What matters is that you're on the quest for truth and that you stay true to that. Let me give you an example. We all know of many um, Christian atrocities. I think the Inquisition is the one that I feel the most strongly about. It was a terrible thing, and yet there are many Christians alive today who'd love to bring it back. Uh, this is a certain interpretation of Christianity that, that I just can't get into. And then, of course, there's the Christians who are very loving, almost to the extent of being pacifists, and, and they take a whole different viewpoint on the relationship with their neighbor. If you look at the atheist side, you see many, many atheists who feel, well, there's no God, therefore I don't have to be moral, therefore I can steer and st steal and kill and do whatever I feel like I can get away with. On the other hand, when I was in my atheistic phase, it's when I really understood Christ's message the best. Because starting from ground zero, not believing in anything, I had to find it experientially. And what I found is that when someone angered me and troubled me and I was all in fumes and distressed and, you know, getting an ulcer, I found that if I really focused on this and tried to understand where the other person was coming from, I quickly could see that what they did to me was not directed at me personally, but was a result of some beliefs they had or some hurts they had had in the past. And that once I saw that, my anger dissolved. And I realized that the part of the Bible that says you should forgive your enemy seven times seven isn't about helping your enemy, isn't about helping the person who hurt you, it's about having peace inside of yourself. And similarly, as an atheist, I learned that the admonition to love your neighbor isn't about helping your neighbor at all. It's about helping yourself. Because when you love your neighbor, you feel that connectedness, and things look a lot better. <laughs> things, it doesn't look like the world is an enemy, it looks like it's a friend. So even though people may strike out at you, once you understand that they're coming from a set of beliefs and misunderstanding about what truth is, the bad feelings inside of you sort of dissolve and you can be at peace. So I guess what I've learned from all this is that it doesn't really matter what you think about God or whether you believe in God. What matters is that you're on the search for truth. And so to me, I feel the truth is, is universal. It's everywhere. And as long as you're sincere, I guess that's the key, as long as you're sincere, that you'll find truth, whichever direction you may go, whether you believe in God or not. And so when I think of a panel like this or think about a discussion of, of Christianity and libertarianism, um, my thoughts are that it's really pretty irrelevant to us as libertarians whether someone believes in God or not. It's kind of like saying we have some libertarians that believe Y2K is going to be the end of the world, and we have others that believe it's going to be nothing, and how does this matter for them being a libertarian? How does it matter if someone believes in UFOs or doesn't as far as their being a libertarian? To me, it doesn't any more than it matters whether they believe in God or not, because it's not what they believe, whether they believe in God or not, it's what they believe about truth and their relationship with others. And so, I guess the question I have for you, are you dedicated to truth? And because you're here, you probably are. And that's all I really need to know, to know that you're part of my family, whether you believe in God or not. Thank you.
Yeah, for the radio audience, I just uh, did the sign of the cross. Yesterday, we enjoyed a presentation by David Nolan. He told us that uh, when uh, Jupiter and, and uh, Saturn and Neptune and the next planet all get lined up, next largest planet all get lined up, that, uh, which happens, I guess, every 72 years, that this can have uh, an effect on the presidential election. And brought up uh, Washington, uh, Lincoln, um, uh, FDR, and I presume, although we didn't use the word Hillary Clinton, for the year 2004. Now, we paid such rapt attention that one person who's at his first libertarian movement said that Nolan has had them mesmerized. And I said, no, no, I don't think anybody here was mesmerized. They were simply allowing themselves to understand what was being said, uh, in, quite possibly, so that later they could attack him and show him where he's wrong. But they are uh, suspending disbelief and actually doing the open-minded, humble listener kind of a thing. It's, it's, it's quite admirable. It was not... I mean, he doesn't know libertarians well, but, you know, they don't mesmerize that all that easy. Now, several years ago, a friend in, in, in uh, Long Beach, California, libertarian, Gib Martin, many of you know him, uh, was a card-carrying atheist for a lot of time, a long time, and now he's more in a, in a, uh, uh, a Baha'i, Hindu, um, eclectic, Eastern uh, kind of a, a motif, told me that he finds it very easy, he's so open-minded, very easy to study anything, pyramids, um, crystals, uh, he will open himself up and try to see where is the truth here and suspend uh, critical judgment until he understands the situation. He said, with one exception, uh, when people come with, at me at the, with the message of Jesus Christ, I sort of pucker up. I sort of put phasers up, right? Um, and I look for any way to deflect them or defeat them that I can. And he doesn't understand why that's the case. We talked yesterday, I said, may I quote this story and use your name, for sure, and, uh, and reminded me that he did not grow up in a um, putative uh, Christian family or an oppressive religious family. This is the end of side one. Side two is already queued up. In almost every country. But recently the French have started to wake up. Sacre bleu. And, uh, and they have put, started to put significant effort and resources into getting their problems fixed, but we're 13 months out. In fact, uh, I don't know whether I have this on these slides, a gentleman down in South America did the math and said if you worked, started working on Y2K today, that if you delayed and you haven't started working on it, but you start your program today, you essentially have about 60 days to actually do the fix when you calculate out how much time needs to be for testing, how much time for counting your stuff, etc., etc., you have actually about 60 days to fix your code. Government reaction in Canada, early in 1998, they came out with an amazing statement, public statement to their government and to their people. All expenditures must be justified in light of Y2K, sort of an environmental impact study. They could not spend anything in the government unless it had been calculated what effect it would have on their Y2K fix. That's fairly strong, isn't it? So then they create, they have just recently, in August of 98, they created Operation Ab Abacus. 
Everybody knows what an abacus is, right? It is a Chinese bead structure, right? Bead thing that you can do very highly computational mathematical calculations on it. And it is Y2K compliant. <laughs> it has no chips. They called it Operation Abacus. And guess what? They basically mobilized their National Guard. They are preparing for martial law or some form of it. They don't call it martial law. They call it the, the military being uh, put out there to help local governments contain whatever problems may occur. And they're putting resources around the country. They're planning on certain ships being in certain ports to be able to provide logistical support and um, uh, generator um, capability, generating capability, uh, if it's needed. Uh, they basically are doing what probably our government's doing but not telling us because they couldn't tell us that in the United States. But in Canada, it's already socialistic. They see that as a good thing. Went out to all the military commanders, the regional headquarters and reserve units. It was a 24-page warning order. There is potential for disruption of major infrastructure systems that may require Canadian forces to support civil authorities. It's right out of the order. So in Sweden, so obviously Canada's taking serious action, they're taking it seriously, uh, and the main thing right now, people are stopped talking about fixing the problem. If any of you have done any research, I'm sure you've found this. They're, start, they're starting to talk, stop talk, talking about fixing it. Their main concern right now is contingency plans, what to do when things fail. The question is, can they write a contingency plan so complete, so well thought out, and so, with so much foresight that they can catch everything, they, they can plan for everything. Okay, Sweden. Sweden, I put this in here because I really respect Sweden. Small country. But they've really taken a head-on view of this. They've decided they're going to self-certify themselves. Now again, they're a little socialist, so they can have a little more control. They established a panel for cooperation between government and IT industry that meets regularly. They created a specific definition of year 2000 compliance. Now, you know, uh, well, we know what definitions are like in the United States. They're sometimes elusive. Uh, they required a special logo to go on electrical equipment that basically has independently been verified as Y2K compliant. Have you seen anything like that in the United States? No. Would it help you if you were buying resources, capital resources for your company, to see that on there, that it's been outside verified that it's Y2K compliant? Of course it would. Would it force companies that are not compliant to get compliance so they could put that logo on there because they're going to be squeezed out of the market if they don't? Of course they would. It does. I think it's just wonderful. They established a format for a year 2000 status report. Every three months they have to, by law, they, have, they are required by the Swedish government to every company that operates within Sweden or is licensed by Sweden uh, has to send them this status report. Has 14, a specific 14 question checklist. 
the pro private and public sectors are, re are required to report at reg regular intervals. So it includes the pi private and the public. They have to answer the same questions. So the Netherlands, they're real close by. The Ministry of Interior and Industry Associations jointly established what they call the Millennium Platform. Uh, and its um, efforts are awareness, coordination, monitoring, and reporting. We have no monitoring and reporting in the United States. The, they, they adopted the Swedish model for self-certification. Self so Russia, now we get into the good stuff, right? They've only been aware of the problem since May of 1998. They've had their problems, right? For several years since the breakup, they've been going down as an economy. Uh, their pro some of their problems reside in that their stolen systems are really hard to fix without the source code. <laughs> it all catches up with you eventually, right? Uh, they're really concerned, we're really concerned about their early warning systems in their silos. We've demonstrated that we've had problems with ours, found them early enough that the better chance is because of their important nature that we'll have our systems uh, ready and done uh, because they're getting the highest priority, of course. Uh, but we've already dispatched people over to Russia to share sensitive information that would help them to keep their early warning systems up because when all their computers go black on January 1st of the year 2000 and Washington calls up and goes, no, really, we didn't launch anything. They're concerned, that, you know, they're concerned the Russians won't believe them. We always calculate other people on how we would react, right? At the end of the July 1998, Alexander Krupanov, chief of the State Communications Committee of the Russian Federation, finally confessed that Y2K is a real problem for Russia. This was in July of 98. Estimated cost for fixing it is somewhere around 500 million. That's naive, but at least they were putting a number on it. But he said, there isn't any work going to be done because guess what? The bucket is empty. We don't have enough money to pay salaries or feed the people. We don't have any money to put into Y2K. Russia's atomic energy minister, ministry spokesman, Mr. Petrov recently told the Associated Press, we don't have any problems yet, we'll deal with the problem in the year 2000. <laughs> They're going, we haven't had any problems yet. We'll deal with them when they break. Turns out that the most critical systems are the automated systems for space-based equipment, which provide intelligence, command, control, and early warning. In fact, problems may arise in up to 80% of all computer systems which the Defense Ministry is using. And that was Dr. Rogoff, advisor to the Foreign Affairs Committee for the Duma of the Russian Federation, member of the Advisory Board of the Russian Security Council and Advisory of the Board of Foreign Ministry. He holds three different positions within the government and he knows what he's talking about. 80% of their um, computers will be affected by his calculation. So let's go to Japan. 
Japan's financial markets are in chaos. They're doing everything that they can to stay alive, and I might add that we're doing everything we can to keep them alive. Tom will go into much greater detail than I can on that. 30% of businesses have not yet started. Small businesses can't get, enough, can't get money because of the present financial crisis. They can't get loans. There's no money to be had. They can't get money lent to them, so they can't put that to Y2K fixes. 39% of small businesses have no IT staff. Government agencies are lagging behind. Finance, transport, energy, telecommunications, and medicine. And that is by the government's report. The Bank of Japan did a survey and found that only 48% had fixed mission-critical systems as of June 98. 50%, over 50% of their mission-critical systems had not been fixed. 21% uh, reported they would not be ready by the end of the year of 98. Some will not be, they reported, will not be ready by the end of next year. This is the banking system. In China, Chinese State Council has recently issued an edict, I love this, that all government agencies should be compliant by September of 99 or there will be punishment. <laughs> now, they didn't say what the exact nature of the punishment would be, but we know that's not a good thing in China, right? And, but I know that it probably motivated a lot of IT managers also. They thought they had it cushy in the high-tech part of China. It all catches up. Uh, their financial markets are obviously in meltdown. They have a 1998 problem. Uh, most of, there's several areas of the world that are just trying to just survive today and then we'll deal with tomorrow. And all of their resources are being devoted towards staying alive economically and their attention and their resources and their money, there's nothing there for Y2K. And so consequently, they're doing very little. You're listening to the Koinonia House Y2K Conference from the Bren Center, University of California, Irvine campus in Southern California. For more of this series, please turn this tape over at this time.